a professional book editor, a dishwasher, a philosophy professor, a ballet instructor, a waiter, and an English teacher in Slovakia and Lithuania. She's ordained clergy, an astrologer, and lives in Ithaca, New York with her beautiful husband, brilliant son, and a slightly above average pit bull. Sarah has been cancer free for eight years. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Bert. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. So tell us, what were you diagnosed with and when? I was diagnosed with stage two invasive lobular carcinoma of the breast on St. Bridget's Day, February 2nd, 2012. What is lobular carcinoma? What does that mean? So breast cancer can start in one of two places in the breast. It can start in the milk ducts, which is a ductal carcinoma, or it can start in the lobes, which is, I used to know this. I think it's where the milk is stored, um, but it's farther up in the breast tissue. So it can start in the... It can start in two places. It can start in the milk ducts. In the or, ducts, okay. Right, or it oh. can start in the lobes of the breast tissue. In the lobes. And yeah, yours, and that's significant. Okay. And yours um, was lobular. Mine was lobular, yeah. And it's uh, also quali- you qualified as invasive. Yes, which means that it was not um, localized to one part of the breast. So in breast cancer, sometimes there's, there's something called ductal, it's usually ductal carcinoma in C2, which means it has not invaded the breast tissue at all. It has just started in, in one place. Okay. And that's sometimes called a stage zero cancer. So invasive just means that it's, escaped from its origin point into more tissue. Okay. And that was eight years ago? Yes, it was eight years ago. Yeah. And so what was... Actually, I want to know, how did you find out that you had a breast tumor? Well, so it turns out that I felt it, but I didn't know what I was feeling because I was breastfeeding my toddler. And um, there are so many changes that happen to the breast uh, during breastfeeding that, first of all, um, it was not recommended that I get a mammogram because they can be very difficult to read when you're breastfeeding. And, um, and because it really seemed to me that the lump was changing, I thought I had a clogged milk duct. I had a couple doctors palpate it and tell me it wasn't anything. Mm. And so, and of course I was scared, but I was really also able to just like push that fear aside. Um, And it wasn't until a nurse practitioner at my primary care practice sent me a letter and said, I think that you should get a mammogram anyway. And I was like, okay, fine. And I did. And Hmm. that's when they confirmed that it was cancer. Gotcha. So it had been there for a while. It had been there for probably, it's palpable, so I could feel it for probably a year. May I ask you about the feeling it for a year part? Well. Like, I'm curious, what, what, what was going on for you when you felt something? Um, well, a couple, I mean, I was, a, as a new mom, I was having postpartum anxiety anyway. And so mm-hmm. it was really difficult for me to sort of um, calibrate my what I should be anxious about and what what was real and what wasn't in terms of anxiety, right? Yep, got it. So I really, I, you know, I just I really didn't think it was cancer. And I'll say this as someone whose mother and sister both have had breast cancer, and I still and had it before I did, and I still didn't think it was cancer. And I had mm. and and you know, but then I'd go for a doctor's appointment and I'd get a breast exam and I'd say, "Can you feel this, please?" And they'd say, "Oh, right, just a just a artifact of breastfeeding." Like, okay, yeah. Okay. I really just pushed it out of my mind. 
No, that makes sense because you were already feeling anxious about that's right. being a new mom. Now, I don't recommend doing what I did, but that's what I did. Yeah, well, I think it's really valuable for people to know because you know someone could be listening to this and you know know somebody who is having these symptoms, but you know, but they're feeling anxious, and the person's like, "Well, I don't want to push them because they're feeling anxious," and it's like, "Well, you know." In retrospect, you'll be that person will be wishing that someone had pushed them to go get checked out. That's right. So I was lucky in that it seems that my cancer was very slow growing. And so I don't think it did. It didn't obviously do a lot of harm for me to have waited so long to find out it was cancer. But again, and even now, you know, I do have anxiety about going to the doctor, of course, after this experience. But I, I always tell myself, just go and get reassured that nothing's wrong. Just go and... Mm -hmm. This is what I live by now is just don't think that you're being silly. Don't diminish what you're experiencing. Just go and be like, look, I may be having an anxiety attack, but I may be having a heart attack. So please check me out. Hmm. And I did, I did that once too. Yeah. 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 You know, when I, so what was I dealing with? I had a pulmonary embolism. As you did? I believe as a result of the chemo. Oh, it yeah. It blocked off 60% of the blood from my right lung. Yeah. I didn't know that. I was exhausted okay. everywhere I went. And so when I went to the hospital, they set me up on, a, you know, the, I can't remember the name of it, it's called, but you do shots in the uh, abdomen, mm-hmm. in, the, in the belly fat to, uh, to keep, it's an anticoagulant, right. you know, often you know, inappropriately called uh, blood thinners. Right. But it's an anticoagulant that I injected into my abdomen twice a day. So I was in the hospital. That's where I learned to do that. And then I went back because I had an issue and I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to call. I didn't want to bother. I didn't want to be mistaken and go to the doctor's office and have everybody think, here I come back in with an embolism issue again and have it not be one. Right. And I was married at the time. And my wife was like, you know what? If you are having an issue with the embolism, would you want them to look at it? I'm like, and I just dropped my head and I said, of course I would. Okay, I'll call them and I'll get a ride an hour south to Sarah, Pennsylvania, because I was working through Guthrie and Sarah. And I get it. It really takes something to to pursue uh, an exam when you don't, you know, for something that can be so extreme because you're like, if it's not, if it's a false alarm, I'm going to feel terrible. And that actually affects people's decision making. Yeah, it does. Or if it's a false alarm, I'm going to feel stupid, like I overreacted. Um, and... One of the things I really learned from my caretakers, my doctors and nurses going through treatment is they are the ones who said, don't ask us anything. You know, don't worry. Like nothing is stupid. I love that. Um, So, and I still struggle with that, but, um, you know, I, I try to remind myself of that. And my spouse reminds me of that, of course. Wonderful. Yeah. So you said something in the beginning that just struck me right to my core. You said, I was breastfeeding. Yeah. And why am I pausing? Because just yikes, like you're breastfeeding and your little baby boy's milk is, is, is you know, passing by a tumor. I don't know, but it's, it's like they're associated with your breastfeeding. And- I know, I know. And actually it got to the point where when he would latch on to that breast, to my left breast, it would hurt. Like the tumor would hurt. Oh my. I know, which is just in retrospect, oh, what we go through. But um, Pre-diagnosis hurt or post-diagnosis? Pre-diagnosis. Okay, so there was pain. There was pain. And post-diagnosis, I mean, I needed to wean him like, 
you know, I met with um, doctors really quickly after my initial diagnosis, and, and they said, in order for us to do surgery on the breast, your milk needs to dry up some. So I needed to wean him um, immediately. I needed to start. And how old was he? He was three. So even though I was devastated, he certainly had <laughs> gotten all the benefits of breastfeeding. Um, it's not as if he were an infant, so I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. But it was still hard for me because that's the I was going to let that process happen, quote unquote, naturally. Like he would just eventually wean himself. Um, but we had to end it. Yeah. And so it sounds like the experience was you didn't get to go through the natural process of allowing him to wean himself. That's right. And I've known you for a number of years now, and I know your connection to your body and the earth and natural way of things, and that interrupted that. That's right. And yeah. such is the way of life. Mm-hmm. But yes, that was, uh, that was hard. Sure. Yeah, I bet. And so they diagnosed you. Yes. And what was the treatment they recommended? Well, so... Um, because my mom and sister had both gone through breast cancer treatment, um, my sister lives in Cleveland and was treated at the Cleveland Clinic, which has a pioneering breast cancer treatment program. And so first I called my husband at work after I got off the phone with the doctor, and then I called my sister, who just burst into tears, um, and then promptly set me up with all her doctors and patients. <laughs> So I talked to doctors here in Ithaca, where I live, and I also went there and consulted with, um, and this is surgeons, in Ithaca, or in Ithaca, I consulted with the surgeon in particular. In Cleveland, the whole slate of everybody, a breast surgeon, a breast reconstructive surgeon, and an oncologist. And the kind of uh, treatment that they recommend for what they thought was just one lump in one place in my breast was a lumpectomy. And so what they do is they go and they take out that breast tissue and they get clean margins. Mm-hmm. And then um, often, I don't know how often, what happens is it turns out there's more cancer in the breast and they have to do another surgery. But that's standard of care. They don't want to overtreat. So that was what I got kind of um, what I would call generic standard of care from a surgeon close to home. When I went to Cleveland, the breast cancer doctor looked at me and he said, given your family history, I would highly recommend a mastectomy. And when he said it, I was like, boom, yes, he's right. Mm. I know. Like I just knew. Yeah. Yeah. And he was right because when they did, they did the mastectomy and when they, they, there was cancer in other parts of the breast. So he was absolutely right. Yeah. And that is one of the benefits of going to a cancer hospital. Yes. Like the folks here in the local hospitals and the small hospitals, some of them can be excellent at operating inside of the standard of care. Right. But the newer, the excuse me, the cancer hospitals, yes. you know, they have, that's all they do. And so when they, exactly. look, they can, they can connect the dots in ways that doctors who are like general oncologists. Or and, general surgeons. Or general surgeons. Yeah. And thank heavens for them right. that we have them here. But when you get to go to a cancer hospital and speak to someone who is the only thing they do every day, all day, they have different conversations and recommendations that turn out, you know, as yeah. for you, turned out being correct. That's right. They were first rate. And um, I felt really lucky because... Well, first of all, I had excellent health insurance through my husband's job. Um, I had recently quit my own job where I also had excellent health insurance. Mm. I had quit it to stay home and take care of our toddler. Yeah. Um, uh, but I could do that because he still had health insurance through his job. Um, I had a sister who um, is a 
truly a warrior and you know that's can be overused but that woman is a warrior and Mm. she just took charge which is what she does sometimes that's annoying (laughs) but in this case it's absolutely this case it was it was fantastic like she just made it happen um and not family Uh, my siblings are you know across the country in california and i navigated my second diagnosis without my wife just me and the community that I called upon to be my support. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I, fortunately for uh, all the different kinds of things I've got myself trained in and educated in, like, you know, I had the means, uh, I had the uh, capacity and the, and, and, and the understanding of the need for support and not doing it alone, you know, and I reached out and I asked people to, to sign up on a Helping, Hand, Helping yes. Hands website to visit me, to, to bring me food, uh, to um, I asked, and, and I would I never went to an appointment without bringing someone with me. Yes, exactly. Yes, and only once was that person the wrong person. <laughs> the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> and, but she, no, she was great in the appointment. But and she and I laughed about it. She was like, right. she goes, "Are you gonna ever ask me to go with you again?" I'm like, "Nope," and I love you. <laughs> right, and that's actually sometimes you don't know this ahead of time, but if you think sometimes the person that you may want to bring to the appointment is not. Like maybe you want to bring your spouse and maybe your spouse is not the right person because they themselves are so um, terrified by your diagnosis, right? Right? Maybe you need someone with more distance. Again, I had my sister who can put all emotion aside and just get shit done. And so, um, and my spouse was also in a position to be my ally, but you know, you got to know. My parents, on the other hand... God bless them. We're there for me and we're supportive, but we're not in a position to be warriors for me. Yeah. Um, and that's that's okay. I didn't need everyone to be that. You had your sister, you had your husband. Right. And I too had a community. But in those in- initial days, it was, you know, my family. Yeah. And uh, you're so fortunate to have that. I, I can't imagine navigating this and not having family. No, but people do all the time. People do all the time. When I went through my first diagnosis, I found out, you know, my mom, through my mom, you know, she had a conversation, you know, after the fact that uh, after both diagnoses had come and gone, she openly admitted that she just couldn't handle it. Oh. So hard to be in the conversation. Mm. You know, she, it was too much for her. Wow. And the emotions just took her over. And I could see that it was too much for her. It you was know. obvious. Okay. And, you know, I did want her support. And then when she came down to be supportive, it was difficult for her mm. because, I mean, heavens, like her son had stage two rectal cancer. Right. I can't imagine. I was 36, 30, you know, just turned 37, you know, two weeks after being diagnosed. And, you know, I think something very valuable for people to know if they're new to a diagnosis is there are going to be people in your life, like you were pointing to, you know, who do you want to bring to your appointment? Someone who can be there for you and not lose it when they hear it because we're at our appointments and they're diagnosing us and we're thinking about taking care of the kids and how we're going to, who's going to get the groceries. And And you're not going to remember a darn thing anyone says. Like you you just need a scribe. Right. And so you write it all down and you have someone there advocating by your side, Mm -hmm. but people are going to have family members who they really hope will be there for them and they may not be. Yeah. And that's, from my experience, I can say that's not from a lack of love. Mm. That's because they... Go ahead. I was going to say that's very enlightened of you to say. 
I w- and I'm sm- I have a big grin on my face. But <laughs> yeah, well, really, I mean, yeah. There were moments where you know that clarity came out of you know a raging argument between me and a loved one. Right. And then I said, okay, I love you, and this call needs to end. That's amazing that and you I could up, do that. Hung yeah. Up the phone because I was just so angry. Right. And then in retrospect, able to see, okay, this person is completely confronted. They're scared to death. Right. And it's their love that has them so scared. Yeah. They so, you know, and we want, heck, I expected everyone to have the capacity to be able to support me. Right. And the reality is not everybody does. No, no. It's so scary when you think a family member, a loved one, a very close friend could die from their diagnosis. It's, I mean, I, 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 you know, I paused in saying that, but like, it's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about staying alive. And if that throws a person and just turns them on their head and emotionally, you know, they're not navigating it well, well, yeah, that's in my world. I can, you know, I, I, let's say this, like these diagnoses allowed me to become a person who can now have space for someone in my life who loves me who can't deal with a tough situation or isn't dealing well. Do you know what I mean? I absolutely know what you mean. And I don't know that I, um, I mean, because we certainly had um, close friends who we thought, I say we, you know, my husband and I thought would have been able to be present for one or both of us who weren't able to. I probably don't hold it against them anymore, Mm -hmm. but I also haven't forgotten um, because it's just hard. It's just, and again, with maturity, you see that, again, there are some people who are in a position to handle tough stuff and some people just aren't. And it may depend on what's being triggered in them. Do they have a loved one die of a similar diagnosis? Right. Or it may depend on a phase they're at in their life. Are they taking care of elders, raising young children, or, you know, who knows? But I know one of the things that was so interesting for me was who was able to show up and who wasn't. Yeah. yeah. There were people who I didn't think, you know, who just I wasn't that close to who came through so strong. People I didn't know who came through so strongly for me. For me too. Yeah. And then other close friends who just, you know, that they couldn't deal as well. And for the most part, um, with a few exceptions, those, I say, I'd say those friendships have faded. Hmm. Is there anything you'd say to them now? And there doesn't, you don't have to. I just, no, I mean, yeah. that's a great question. I mean, in, this, um, in the year leading up to my 50th birthday, which I just celebrated, I did a lot of thinking um, and feeling about the stuff that I, that's sticky that's, that I've been kind of holding on to from the past, whether it's resentment or a grudge or guilt or shame, and um, did a, a lot of work on thinking about what it means to loosen my grip on that or to, I mean, it can't, it's not necessarily erased, you know, but that yeah. to, to let it, just to, to let it loosen, to not hold it so tightly. And that, again, that's, um, that's my process of like, look, I'm just not going to hold on to that resentment. I am older. I have more perspective. I know that, um, you know, that the relationships are very fluid and, you know, no, I'm not close to that person anymore, but I also don't feel the resentment that I did, that they couldn't show up. Mm-hmm. I got it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you have moved 
past it, it's no longer something you cling to. And at the same time, the relationship grew apart, mm-hmm. perhaps as a result. Maybe, or... Or just because we find different relationships and friendships in life. I had a, a powerful experience before I was ever diagnosed. I had a friend who was diagnosed and with uh, anal cancer. Hmm. And when I was in a training program with her, I was very supportive and you know interacted with her. And once she had to leave the program because of the diagnosis, I didn't reach out to her. Mm-hmm. And maybe a month or two in, she called me and said, hey, Bert. And I was on a list of people that she called. <laughs> and she said, where have you been? Like, I could really use your support. And, and you're nowhere. You're nowhere to be found. I immediately burst into tears. Oh. And I said, Mary, you got diagnosed with cancer. I thought you were going to die. And until you asked me right now, I didn't even realize I just ran away as soon as I had the opportunity. Right. And I love you. And she's like, I love you too. So when are you going to come see me? I'm like, uh, Thursday? She's like, great. And I did. She was an exceptional human. She is exceptional. That's, I mean, that's amazing. I really, I applaud that. Me too. It, it's phenomenal. And yeah. she was always a very powerful person. She reached out and for what she needed. It's amazing. Yeah. And so when I got diagnosed, I noticed all these folks just not showing up. Yeah. And you may recall, I kept a blog. Yes. Um, and for the folks listening, like I kept the blog because it was becoming too much to communicate with everyone in my life who wanted to know how I was doing. And I'm like, well, I could send an email. I'm like, well, I'll just use a blog. Mm-hmm. And then as a result of keeping the blog, I started sharing more and more openly. And I started sharing, you know, the emotional uh, struggles or curiosities about it. And uh, it was it became really such a gift to me to write my experience, you know, and so for, so for some folks, you know, that could be just a journal that they keep for themselves. And right. Fantastic. But it was so valuable for me to, as I wrote it, cause I'm, I'm not one who grew up journaling. And so as I wrote my blog entries, you know, for those who journal, they know when you take it from thought to the pen and the paper, it, it concretizes it somewhat and you become yes. aware of it in a way that you can't become aware of it when it's just in your mind. Right. So I kept that blog and I wrote in it one day my story about what happened with Mary. And I said, so for those of you in my life who haven't been around, like I want you to know that I love you and I appreciate you and I don't have the expectation of you coming around or maybe I do have the expectation, mm-hmm. but I get that you're navigating your own life experience now being now including the fact that me your friend has cancer so if you're not coming around i love you it's all right and uh you're welcome to knock on the door anytime and not so long after that post you know my phone rang got a few texts people wanted to come by but i learned that from mary you know like i think if i hadn't had that experience with mary i just i kind of would have wondered and we get these powerhouse people in our lives that just like little little gems you know that is beautiful and i know too that you know, if you stay away from a friend for a little while and you start to feel guilty. <laughs> Maybe I should use I statements. When I, if I start to feel guilty, then I'm less likely to contact them and it just, it can snowball. And so that just for someone like Mary or like you to have the presence of mind to issue an invitation to those people who may yeah. have fallen by the wayside, who may be afraid is really a lovely um, gift to them. I didn't do that. 
<laughs> hey, you know, we each bring our own contribution to this conversation, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, so you had your mom, not your mom, excuse me, you had your sister. Yes. And your husband. Yes. Both with you. Yes. At a, now, your sister was probably with you at appointments in uh, at Yeah, Cleveland and Clinic. my parents were there too. They just, did, you know, my sister ran things, which is not unusual for our family. Um, my parents were absolutely there. I have this very distinct memory of sitting with my mom and sister in one of the many waiting rooms at the Cleveland Clinic, which it's lovely there. Like it almost felt like we were on a little retreat together, mm. a little at a little resort. Um, and I remember we were sort of gallows humors, of course, one way my family deals with these things and we were they both remembered like boom their diagnosis dates and like what it was like for them and so we were like swapping it was kind of like swapping war stories we were swapping these stories of like mm. oh yeah i remember exactly where i was and and for you know we were laughing and um so my parents were they were definitely there and they were definitely supportive and i can't i mean for my dad he'd has his younger daughter was diagnosed twice his wife was diagnosed and then his older daughter was diagnosed like oh my goodness i can't believe the guy's still standing and then my mom subsequently did die of breast cancer when she died um the year after i finished treatment which means so i finished treatment in the fall of 2012 and she was diagnosed with metastatic cancer right around christmas time 212 213 mm -hmm. right in there um and then and then um died nine months later I didn't know. I, didn't I meet you like nine months later? Like did, I met you in 2013, didn't I? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> Maybe it was 14. <laughs> Might have been. Maybe it was 2014, okay. That sounds more like it to yeah. me. So your dad had, like he'd been through I, a lot. I like, don't I, even know how he did it. Sir, I can't imagine my son and stepson both getting cancer. No. And my spouse. I'd be like, hey, hello, can I get a break? Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Can I, uh, can I get a, you know, as my son would say, you know, can I play a reverse card on this, please? <laughs> <laughs> I see that sounds terrible. You want someone else to get it, but yeah, he's like, my goodness gracious, the right? guy, what he had to deal with. This poor guy. Oh, yeah. So did you get part of your treatment in the Cleveland Clinic? And I part did. Of it I did. That's exactly what I did. So I, um, I had my surgery there, and um, I. And when was that? When did? So let's see. So if my diagnosis was early February, surgery was early May. Okay. Um, and again, some people have chemotherapy. Some people with breast cancer have chemotherapy before surgery. Mm -hmm. Some after. Some, of course, don't have it at all. Um, so for me, it was surgery, um, which uh, I get. And one thing I didn't know before I got cancer is how the diagnosis comes in in parts like you don't have all the information like first there was just the information that this lump in my breast had cancerous cells in it mm -hmm. right and then there was the decision well given limited information how do we treat that okay lumpectomy mastectomy okay we do mastectomy and then we have the, that breast tissue and we have more information that it's in it's multifocal so it, there's cancer starting in different parts of the breast but it had not spread to the lymph nodes mm -hmm. which is a good sign um, so then you know further questions about what subsequent treatment and chemo um, for me was of course I didn't know this ahead of time but it was profoundly challenging and I was strongly advised to get it close to home um, which is what I decided to do and um, I have to say that I think the oncology staff here and the chemo nurses who run the lab are stellar. I agree. I had such a positive experience. I am so glad I went elsewhere for surgery. 
my particular case, not everyone makes that choice or can make that choice. And then to come here for oncology is just, um, and my, you know, I continue to have follow-up care um, and it's just fantastic. At the Mayo Clinic? At the Mayo Clinic? I'm sorry, Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic, yes. No, um, no, here. I see my oncologist every six months. So yeah, you pointed to something uh, really important. Like we get diagnosed and they say, this is like what the treatment would be. And then they do biopsies and they do other different types of tests and scans and the treatment starts changing. Exactly. And we're like, wait a second. Like you start to learn the uniqueness yes. of your own diagnosis. Yes. And we, both how much they know and how little they know. And when you start finding out how little they know in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite an eye opener. It is. Were you given options as far as treatment? Oh, yeah. Um, I was. And in fact, I, um, so I knew the mastectomy was the right thing to do. Um, for chemo, the, my oncologist here in Ithaca wanted to do a more aggressive, in some ways more aggressive chemotherapy. I think it's fair to call it that. Um, the oncologist in Cleveland opted for something slightly less aggressive and I weighed my options agreed with the oncologist in Cleveland and um, my oncologist here was okay with it. So mm-hmm. she respected my decision. There was also a huge fuss about radiation because of the location in my tumor so close to my heart. And because mm. I was relatively young, there's this question of is radiation going to damage the heart more than it's going oh, to help with cancer. Goodness gracious. And I try, I talked to many, many um, radiologists and, and again, I found, and I just feel so, um, lucky that I had tenacious people helping me. I mean, I found, I finally found a doctor who didn't just talk to me about standard of care, but who was absolutely brilliant, absolutely familiar with my case mm-hmm. and um, gave me the most detailed advice. And I, I ended up taking her advice, which was for no radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if I were going to have radiation, I would probably would have had it here in Ithaca, but it, I decided not to have it. So... And how many chemo treatments did you have? I think I had four. Four, three weeks apart. <laughs> Boy, it doesn't sound like much. It was no, hell. No. What was it? I mean, <laughs> it was I, hell. I, I mean, <laughs> but some people go through much, much more aggressive treatment my, than that. Both times, like my chemo was six months, and you yeah. get you get a treatment every two weeks. Jeez. And. You know, the second time with my uh, um, hepatic artery pump, I had like a, a secondary chemo that right. went right into my liver. Right. So I'm laughing as if what you went through wasn't difficult. I just, <laughs> they, they told me like that my chemo, they're like, it's going to be rough, man. We're going to, we're going to, you know, put you into the, you know, we're going to bring you right to the brink of death. Right. In order to keep you alive. You're young, you're strong, you can handle it. And we mm-hmm. want you to not have a recurrence. Well, that didn't work out. But yeah. since then, you know, the, the second treatment ended in June of 2012, and it is now March of 2020. Woohoo! Yeah, so... And I believe you have a kind of cancer which they will call cured. Is that right? My, that- my oncologist, she essentially, yeah, she used the word remission. Oh, okay. And, I, and I've heard, I've, I hear people, some people like use the word remission. Some people, some doctors have apparently taken it out of their vocabulary. Interesting. That's what I've heard. Um, but she, I, she told me that if I were to get diagnosed with cancer again, she's like, it would be simply me getting cancer like any person gets right, cancer. Right, right. It's not. Right. A, um, a recurrence. Right. Because it's been after the five-year window passed. So people may not realize that depending on the kind of cancer you have, 
that there are some cancers that, like I believe testicular cancer is like this, that it's, for one thing, it has a very high cure rate and it actually can be cured, right? It mm. actually, it, so, there, so a person's in a situation that if they were to get more cancer, it would not be metastasized. Testicular cancer would be a different cancer. For breast cancer, they never use the word cure. About one third of women who get diagnosed with early stage breast cancer, which is considered the good kind, um, go on to dis- to be diagnosed later on with metastatic breast cancer, which is the kind that will kill you. Um, and they don't know necessarily, they have some knowledge, but they don't have complete knowledge about which of those early stage, and I shouldn't just say women, sorry, men also get breast cancer. So early stage people, <laughs> anyone with breast tissue, and that's all of us. Yeah. You know, which ones will go on to develop metastatic cancer? They don't know for sure. They have ways of, again, uh, running the odds um, to some extent. But so that's why I, w- I personally will stay in some kind of treatment for the rest of my life. So that's really tough to hear that anyone who has breast cancer will, n- at this point in the, in, uh, with what the treatments we have available, you will not ever be listed as cured. That's right. Now you can call yourself whatever you want. And if cured is a psychologically healthy word for you, then... Sure. But it also can... Yeah, it's true. They, don't, they won't use the word cure. Just because it, it's... Again, the farther out you get from initial diagnosis, the less likely you are to have it come back. But it can. So you did four chemotherapy treatments three weeks apart. Yeah. I know it doesn't sound like much. 12 weeks. Well, that's three, <laughs> that's three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a summer. It was a summer of chemo. And how was the treatment for you? It was, uh, I'm trying to think if it was the hardest, it was the hardest thing. I have these like things in my life. I'm like, that's the hardest thing I ever went through. I'm pretty sure chemo takes the cake at this point. I think that was the hardest thing I ever went through. Before that, it was childbirth, mm-hmm. which at least you get a baby out of that. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, for me, it was absolutely devastating to my sense of self. And I mean that in a very almost metaphysical way. Like I felt like somebody yanked my soul out of my body maybe well, I don't have to ascribe agency. Maybe it wasn't somebody, but I felt, I felt like part of me was taken to another planet or I didn't, it was terrifying. And, um, and I don't know. I don't, it's hard to find words for, and I don't think everyone goes through this cause I, I haven't really heard other people talk about it this way. But I couldn't, I had never experienced anything like it. And I'm usually a pretty like grounded, kind of earthy person. And I just felt like I had been like, like my atoms had been smashed apart. Like things that had been integrated were no longer integrated. So maybe they weren't um, separated in the way I'm about to ask the question. But do you mean like physically or emotionally or mentally or all three? All the whole package. It sounds like you felt. For starters, a part of you that how you identified as yourself was was missing. Yeah. Wasn't present for you. That's right. Holy cow. Now, I should say that that happened. The I experienced that most strongly right after a treatment. And as the weeks went on before, you know, the subsequent treatment, I would feel more present or more to, together integrated. Um, and then after the, the first one was the hardest because I just had no idea what to expect. And then I kind of learned some skills for trying to put myself back together again um, after. I've never heard, actually, I've never heard anyone else talk about it this way. 
I would love to know if other people have experienced it this way. Well, perhaps we'll get some comments and right. people will start letting <laughs> us know. Yeah, yeah. Because it's I haven't heard that experience of it before. You and I currently have a friend who just started chemo. Right. And she's told me a little bit how just far out she feels and, and you know, the chemo brain. Yeah. And, you know, no appetite and just not feeling herself. Right. But to feel like your soul's just been ripped out of you. It sounds like there was there was an emptiness. There was something that was missing that used to be there that wasn't there anymore. Yeah. It, it was like thing, or things had been scrambled and confused and, and sh- you know, sure, physical symptoms of appetite and fatigue and chemo brain, which I may still be suffering from, um, all of that too, but just the, just, I don't even know. Do you know, you've seen Galaxy Quest and there, have you seen Galaxy Quest? No, what is that? It's like one of my favorite movies. This is a, a movie from quite a while ago. Starring Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, um, uh, Alan Rickman. Anyway, it's uh, Sam Rockwell before he was well known. And it's a parody of um, sort of Star Trek fandom. So it's about a group of people who are actors on a Star Trek-like show. And the show is long past, but they kind of still show up at, you know, conventions and um, sign photos. And and, um, then some real aliens come along to ask for their help. Okay, I've heard about this, but continue because <laughs> oh I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember. So okay, keep going. so it's, I've watched this movie over and over again. It's <laughs> so funny. It is one of the movies that makes me laugh out loud the most. And there is this scene where a, they're on a um, another planet and there's this creature who's like threatening Tim Allen's character and the, the creature gets beamed up to the ship in kind of this like experimental beam, I think is what happens. And when the creature shows up in the ship, it's been turned inside out. So like mm. it's insides around the it's insides oh around the outside, and that's I think they were testing it on the creature so that then they could de- then bring Tim Allen up, and so when they got the creature up there, they were like, "Ooh, it didn't work so well." But anyway, <laughs> it kind of felt like that too. I mean, it felt like I like my insides around my outside, and um, mm. all these metaphors. So it was profoundly disorienting to you. Yes, that is the too long don't read <laughs> version. Profoundly disorienting. Yes. Wow. See, for me, it was just, I felt like I had alcohol poisoning. Anyone who's ever oh. drank so much alcohol that they wake up the next day and you feel poisoned. And people ask me, like, you know, I was just asked today, yeah. um, what does that feel like? And I was like, you know, okay, you, I get poisoned, but what is poisoned? I'm like, yikes, I don't know. It's like there's an ache within the body. It's worse than the flu. It's like, it's like a, a tightening of 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 pain that's not constricting my muscles but it's just like it just just pulls on you from the inside and hurts and you're tired and and aching and sore and kind of stinging huh that's how chemo felt to me wow and in addition to the nausea right um Oddly, I was able to, so two things, I was able to reduce some of the nausea by smoking marijuana. Yes. And I was able to reduce the nausea by eating food. Yes. I had, I ate, I gained weight doing chemo. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I remember that I really wanted like fatty protein, high protein food. 
that that is like, so it's like my body was craving grounding, right? Like, mm. um, I, like I was eating these, uh, back when, when the piggery had a restaurant, it was like right over by my house and they made these amazing burritos with this like carnitas <laughs> and all this cheese. And I was like, those were good. Yeah. I, I, when I was doing, so before my surgery, I had, uh, there's a standard protocol, you know, like five or five and a half weeks of pre-chemo and radiation. And at one point I wasn't eating, you know, cause I am the radiation caused, you know, intestinal bloating uh, yeah. and diarrhea yeah. and ugh, so rough. And my wife says to me, you know, like you're not eating. What will you eat? And I'm like, I don't want anything. And it moves me every time I tell this story. And she's like, look, like you need to eat. And I finally looked at her. I said, you won't buy me what I want. She's like, try me. I said, I want chicken wings and I want waffle fries with cheese all over them. And she went and bought me so much. (laughs) I don't think I could eat them all for two days. Because she's like, sweetie, eat. I don't care. And, you know, we all think like, you know, well, you want to eat healthy and you should have juice and vegetables. And it's like, when you are not interested in food, if you will eat junk food, good. Yeah. That's right. And I will never encourage junk food, but when it comes to the point that you simply will not eat, you have no appetite, people don't understand. Like you gag on food if you have no appetite for it. Right. Your throat literally constricts and it's so unpleasant. Yeah. And if you will eat fried up, greasy, you know, uh, uh, burritos, mm. chicken wings, whatever it is, like I am not a doctor, I am not a health <laughs> practitioner, but if someone asks me, I'm like, Give your loved ones some food, and if they will eat something, give it to them. That's right. Goodness gracious. That's right. You can eat healthy before you get cancer, and you can eat healthy after treatment. Right. How many? (laughs) But you eat what you can eat. Yeah. And how how many years did it take the cancer to grow? This is a hypothetical question. Right. You. How long did it take? Right. What you eat in this window. Right. Now maybe we'll find out. I'm 100% wrong, but I'm still going to stick to my guns at the moment and say. If a person, whatever they'll eat, like just get some, get some sustenance in their That's body. Right. Yeah. So you felt not yourself and you nodded and, and there was some agreement there when I talked about food reducing the nausea. Yes. So what was the nausea like for you when you had your treatments? You know, it's funny. I forgot about the nausea until you mentioned it. Mm. I think it must not have been that bad or... <laughs> I think it must not have, I think, I, I think it's the kind of thing that occurred so many days after treatment. Once and the steroids I, wear off and once the yeah, anti-nausea meds wear off? Probably. And then I don't think I had it that badly. I do know that smoking marijuana helped. And I have to say that I completely lost my taste for pot after using it to go through cancer treatment. Mm. I have no desire anymore. Hmm. <laughs> um, not everyone's experience, but definitely was mine. Yeah. And then, and then... Food and just whatever sounded good. What, whatever would get you through the day. Exactly. Like I said, when I had that poison feeling yeah. from chemo, when I smoked pot, it would make that feeling go away. Oh. And I wouldn't feel stoned. And I think it's because I felt so stoned from the chemo. Right. That the marijuana wasn't changing that, but it made, it softened that poison feeling. That makes sense to me. And, and I'll tell you, the first three months of chemotherapy... There'd be occasionally, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but a nurse here or there would say, hey, you might want to try marijuana. Mm-hmm. 
because I hear people are getting really good results. And I would say, you know, back when I was a kid and I smoked pot, we, you know, we always were trying to come up with every reason we could to make marijuana legal. And I go, that's just a bunch of nonsense. And I'm like, well, you know, finally, three months in, I try it and I'm like, oh my gosh, mm. I feel so much better. I was so, you know, because I just didn't think it was real. I didn't, I couldn't imagine. And, and it made such a difference. Yes. And uh, I started smoking a little before I'd go in for my treatment because mm. the anti-nausea medication they were giving me during my first post-surgery chemo, six months of that, the anti-nausea medication was knocking me out cold. And so during treatment, you know, I'd wake up like two hours later and I was like, you know, wow. had some people had to help me walk. Finally, I said, no more. Mm-hmm. Because at one point I called the nurses over. I'm like, I think my heart's slowing down. Whoa. And they checked it. You're fine. I'm like, can you get the doctor? They got the doctor. Wow. Over. I said, I can't do this. Yeah. I'd rather be throwing up <laughs> than, th- th- than be out cold and wasted and, and, and so out of it. You know, there were points um, post-chemotherapy treatments when they had like removed my port mm-hmm. or put in a new port when I got diagnosed a second time. Yeah. I, I'm like, don't put me under, please. Like, no, just give me a local. And they'd laugh. And I go, no, I'm not kidding. Right. And I talked to the doc. Doc's like, I get it. No problem. Give you a mm-hmm. local. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's not a pleasant sound hearing a port go in because right. they're tearing tissue as they're punching the hole to make it go into the skin, the connective tissue. But I was so tired of being doped up. And this really started um, after my first surgery when I was doing chemo and I did not want any more nausea medication. I'm like, give me a little bit, give me a sprinkle. Right. But like, I can't be doped up. And that's where the marijuana came in mm. and, and helped reduce the nausea and then eat food. You know, uh, the second time I did uh, chemotherapy for, for, and after I had the metastasis to the liver, I was eating fruit like you can't imagine. Mm. Like, I'm not a big eater of oranges and grapefruit. I was devouring oranges. Mm-hmm. I was covering ruby red grapefruit with honey. Oh my god! Eating that quite a combo. <laughs> I was eating oranges and grapes and plums and peaches and just like wow. like a madman. And then when the chemo ended, like about a month later, I was over it and I wasn't eating too much fruit. You know, more <laughs> fruit than normal. But these things that that we crave. Mm-hmm. I've never had a pregnancy craving, but <laughs> it's, it's very much the same. I'll tell is you it? that very much the same. It's because I think, I mean, the way I think of it is like the, the animal nature of the body is asserting itself and saying that this is what I need. And mm-hmm. the brain is not interfering so much to be like, well, I'm not really sure you should be eating that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So very similar in my experience. <laughs> and you had chemo brain. I think, you know, it's a little hot, given that I became a mother <laughs> and went through, you know, and the sleeplessness that that entails and also just the like thinking about a million more things than I used to think about and, you know, uh, anxiety disorder and chemo, who knows? And just normal aging, like who, I can attribute it to anything. Uh, I, yes, I do think I have some fogginess. My husband doesn't think so, but. Well, I am a bit embarrassed to admit that a couple of years ago, I was talking about having chemo brain because when I was doing chemo, I had six months of chemo both times. And it was over the winter, the first time I had done chemo, it was, uh, you know, 2008 in like, you know, the fall until the spring of 2009. And at one point I let, we had, you know, like a 12 pound, 15 pound Shih Tzu and I let the dog outside and everyone else was asleep. 
45 minutes later, I'm like, oh my gosh. And I go out there. It's like four degrees out, you know? And he's just looking at me like, are you out of your mind? The glass door. And I let him in. And the next morning I told my wife, I'm like, I do not get to let the dog out anymore. You understand? I do not get to let the dog out anymore. Like that creature, all I had to do was fall asleep. And that was it. His life would have been over. Poor little sweetheart. Yeah. And he immediately hopped up on the couch and we snuggled. It was fine. Yeah. But it was only maybe a couple of years ago where it dawned on me. What I used to say was the chemo brain lasted for X, you know, it was X number of months, maybe a month or two months before the chemo brain went away mm-hmm. or post-surgery from the anesthesia. It was like a month before I was back to normal. And then it hit me. I went, ooh, maybe it was a month or two before I was, before I believed that I was back to normal. Hmm before I felt myself again. I don't right. know if my memory is what it once right, was. Right, right. You know, I, it's, how do you measure that? Oh, I can tell that mine is not what it once was. I, I think that, uh, you know, anesthesia is, is intensely powerful. Yeah. And they don't know why it works. Right. I was just listening to someone speak about having surgery as a baby. And back when this guy was an infant, they didn't have anesthesia for babies. Whoa. Right? And I was just like... What did they... Oh. Uh, yes, thank you. So I'm not even sure why I... Why that <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think that just kind of shot out of me. Maybe. <laughs> it, it, but, that's horrifying. Yeah, that, that's kind of irrelevant. So that's going to But get, they were concerned it would do more harm than good is what that means. I mean, that's... There you go. Yeah. There you go. They're concerned it would do more harm. That's, that was my point. Thank yeah. you. That it was going to do more harm than good because it does harm to us. Yes. It's not, it's not great for us. And my understanding is they don't know why it works, right. but it does. And they found different cocktails that tend to work. Right. And I have never felt normal after a surgery and anesthesia. My dad had dementia beginning um, in his life. You know, it was obvious that his mind was starting to go a little bit and he had to have a hip replacement. And once his hip was replaced, he never was the same again. Wow. And I hadn't had anesthesia at that point in my life, but I was really clear that anesthesia just knocked his brain for a loop and he never came home. Wow. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very powerful stuff. And I do think that it affected me as well. Yeah. And we are lucky to have it. And, and we're lucky to have it. Because we need it. And Anesthesia, chemo, like we're here. Right. But it does make me... Um, you know, my experiences with surgery do not make me want to go out and get any kind of elective hmm. surgery. <laughs> like I'm not in any rush to have surgery that's not medically necessary because it's it's really unpleasant. Yeah, I have a clost- I have a colostomy right now, as you know. Mm-hmm. And if I were to find out that they could do like some kind of rectum, oh yeah, uh, uh, um, re what is the word? Replumb me. Um, uh, Hook up the pipes. Transplants. Ah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) If they were able to give you a transplant. Interesting. I don't really know if I want to do it. Oh, that's fascinating. Like I I, I irrigate my bowel every morning. I give myself an enema first thing in the morning. Someone listening to this right now is going, excuse me, what are you talking about? Oh, we've heard it before. I irrigate. (laughs) (laughs) I irrigate my bowel every morning and then I... It flushes out my entire large intestine and I don't even think about my colostomy pretty much for the rest of the day. Yeah. It's it's not active at all and it's incredibly convenient. Now, would it be convenient to have a fully functioning, um, to be fully intact again? Right. And to have you know, all the parts that work. I mean, 
wave a magic wand and have it all be there? Yeah, it would be great. Mm -hmm. Do I actually want to go through a surgery and take uh, um, immunosuppressants for the rest of my life? Oh, yeah. Like, um, I'm okay right now. Yeah. I'm good. Well, see, I think this is a really interesting point, though, because I think what what you don't often hear around narratives of cancer is um, maybe especially for people who've had cancer when they're young is sort of what you live with for the rest of your life. I mean, what does it mean yes. to be like a healthy, vital, young, I know you two turn 50 this year. I hope I can say that. You can edit yeah, it Yeah, no, I, I love <laughs> so, it. I'm turning but, 50. I'm I know, thrilled to. I know. I'm thrilled. I am also thrilled. Uh, you know, to and to just have a colostomy bag for the rest of your life to someone who is able-bodied or much younger, that might sound horrible, but it is just a fact of life. It sounded horrible to me when they told me I was going to have to I'm have one. I'm sure. It was terrifying. The only person I knew who ever had one um, would uh, occasionally uh, smell up the room. Oh, wow. Because I don't mm. think that person had a carbon filter on theirs like I do. Okay. You know? And people have reasons why they have the kind of pouches they have, and maybe mm-hmm. their insurance doesn't cover what they need. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's hard. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to be the person who stinks up the room, and I don't want people to see my pouch and look at me and look at me and then immediately think of poop. Right. <laughs> I mean, come on, that's exactly what is the mind is doing. Fear, yeah. Yeah. And as you know, as I inched out into the world and being noticed, you know, eventually, you know, I started going swimming and I'd put a band aid over the uh, um, stoma, you know, that's the, mm-hmm. that's the opening where the intestine exits the body. And then eventually I, when I got a little more completely comfortable with that, I would just go out and have my pouch on and just have it flapping in the wind like I do now. Mm-hmm. But that took years. Yeah, That took years of, of, you know, before I was comfortable enough. And I think part of that development, you know, also to do with the fact that as I got older and matured and more honest with myself, you know, I came to love myself and to realize that this is not who I am. And if somebody really has an issue with this, I really get that that's their issue. Yeah. It's their issue. Yeah. It's not mine. That's right. And if it does provoke something in their thinking, I get it. Yeah. And if you can handle it, you can handle it. And if you can't, you can't. I mean, hell, some people hear the, the word cancer and they squirm and leave the room. Right. Like, you know, we all have our... Uh, our, you know, our abilities to deal with what we can and what we can't. Having more surgeries, like, I, I, you know, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I would want to. And like, like I said, when I had, uh, when they took out my pump, my, my um, hepatic artery pump. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right. That was a big deal because. It was, it was a surgery. It was, a, oh yes. But it was also your way of saying, I'm not going to need this again. Yes. It Which was, is big. They, they asked me to wait five years. Yeah. And they took it out and looked at my doc. I'm like, can we just do a local on this? Mm-hmm. He starts laughing. He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a... He goes, yes, it's a procedure. You know, <laughs> surgeons do two things. They do surgeries and they do procedures. And I learned this because I was talking about a surgery. Okay. And my surgeon's like, you have another surgery? I go, yeah, to have the... the pump. He goes, no, no, no. That's... That's uh, for those of you listening. I was motioning to my pump. Yeah, to have the have the pump put in. He's like, that's that's not a surgery. Oh, okay. Or have it taken out. Excuse me. So that's a procedure. Okay. <laughs> and so he said, no, this yes, this is a procedure, but no, you are not getting local. Like, <laughs> this is a big deal. We need you out. Right. But I didn't want to be. Right. I don't want to be. And and I do most things that I can go through. I had a uh, an endoscopy where they yes. put a scope down your throat, and I refused to take Versed or to be put under. I said, you can give me a little volume, but 
I don't want, you know, for my uh, colonoscopies, Right. I don't go under at all. Right. I'm not, I have to get my first one now that I'm 50. So, um, yeah. Although I think the recommendation now is actually to start having them earlier. 45, 45. I think. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, I'm having my first one and I also plan not to go under. Yeah. And, and what you can do is what I would recommend even is they can have an IV all mm-hmm. set up. Oh, so if you want it. And if you're like, yeah. okay, this is insanely uncomfortable. Right. Because I don't have, you know, now that I have no rectum and I have no anus, I think it's probably less uncomfortable mm. for me. Interesting. I mean, when I did have colonoscopy, which dis- discovered, you know, the sigmoidoscopy and then the colonoscopy that, you know, to discover that I had cancer, mm-hmm. I had a tumor as well. So I don't know if the pain I was feeling. Oh, right. It may have been just because it's touching the tumor because it's an exposed tumor. Right. How, what were your symptoms? What made, what? I was passing blood. Yeah, that is the classic and symptom. Eh? I was like, and, and after a while, after, you know, a number of months of, it is a classic symptom. And after the number of months of passing blood, talking to my wife about it and we we're like, yeah, I'm like, yeah. She's like, let's go to the doctor. I'm like, okay, I should. I went to the doctor and in a seven month period, I went four times and he kept telling me I had hemorrhoids. Because you were in your mid thirties and they mm-hmm. don't expect to see and cancer. He, and he thought he felt a hemorrhoid going to digital exam. Oh my exam. gosh. So finally I was passing blood. Like every time I'd pass gas, there was blood. And I'm like, this is insane. And so I asked for a, to see a specialist mm-hmm. and the specialist uh, came in gave me a digital, said, do you have cancer in your family? I'm like, oh, oh. gosh, oh no, oh no. And then he did the the, the, the scope, like a sigmoidoscopy, just a short scope. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, I'm sorry, you have so much blood, I can't even see. Oh, wow. So oh, how I knew, terrifying. Yeah, and so I knew. Yeah. I just knew. Yeah. And I went down and had the uh, colonoscopy, and they said, yeah, there's a, we just did the biopsy, but we, it looks like cancer. So this too, they, they don't expect to find cancer in young people. Chances are, if you're a young person, you won't get cancer. Like odds are. Right. And, you know, you also just can't have a doctor be like, ah, it's probably not it because, you know, like see a specialist. You know, I too, you know, like I said, had doctors palpate my breast that I was breastfeeding from. And they're like, oh no, it's just, a, it's just a duct that's clogged or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot when it comes to uh, you know getting additional procedures and surgeries, and you know you said you just wouldn't want any more. Um, yeah, well, so here's the thing. So I um, I had originally thought that when if I ever had a mastectomy that I wouldn't want any reconstructive surgery. Mm-hmm. There is such a and it makes complete sense to me. There is such a range of. Um, opinions just among women who have to have mastectomies whether they want reconstruction or not and what kind of reconstruction they want mm-hmm. um i was quite sure i didn't want it but you know i talked to the plastic surgeon at the cleveland clinic who had pioneered their breast surgery program the you know the plastics part as opposed to the cancer part and he said you know i have large breasts and he said you are going to for the sake of just the balance of the weight in your torso you're going to want to have an implant. So I thought about it. Um, you know, I went back and forth and I decided, Oh, and, and partly it was because of my identity as a breastfeeding mother. Like I still wanted to have like kind of the softness and the cleavage, like mm-hmm. right here, I'm gesturing to my cleavage. Um, and so that was part of my reasoning too. 
but I didn't want to have more than one surgery. And the doctor said to me, you actually have enough breast tissue that we can do both surgeries at the same time. We can do the mastectomy, which is removing the breast tissue. Mm -hmm. And then we can put in an implant, one surgery, you know, and I said, okay, let's do that. So you opted for it. I opted for it. And the other thing, oh, the things you learn. So it turns out that the largest implant they make is a C cup, um, which on a hmm. woman of my stature, when you're starting from zero, is not very large. Again, if I were a petite woman, gotcha. that might be fine. But when you have a mastectomy and all your breast tissue's cleaned out, you're starting, does this make sense? You're starting from zero? It does make sense starting from zero, but I've, you know, there, there's like, you know, occasionally you see someone that has like, you know, an enormous breast implant. Like in a pornographic type situation? Uh, well, I don't, I mean, I'm thinking more like, you know, women who think that it's a priority when they're modeling right. have really large breasts. It's like, so there, I mean, there's one of two I don't know anything happening. about it. So Again, it's, it's relative to the rest of the size of the rest of the body. Okay. So, right. So on a very thin or very petite woman, a C cup's going to look bigger. But I also know for, um, that there, if you can, you can go to other countries and have like two implants put in, which is not FDA approved. Um, so basically, but what the doctor was saying to me is like, look, we'll give you the biggest implant we have. It's not going to be anything close to the size of your other breast. And I was like, okay, let's do it anyway. And I'll have an implant. And then if I want to wear a prosthesis on top of that, fine. So this is my current situation. And I will say, I am not thrilled with it. Yeah. Um, my breast surgeon did a beautiful job and my fake breast looks really good. Hmm. Um, he was just a master. Um, and then I have another breast that's about on this, you know, body since puberty. So 40 years and has breastfed a baby and it's a very different size and it's, you know, it's more like a 50 year old breast than the kind of perky implant breast. And so, um, so they, so they look quite different from each other. And if I'm wearing something really form fitting, I will again, kind of like use a prosthesis and kind of compensate. But it, a lot of times I just walk around with wrestler two different sizes yeah and again it's just kind of a hassle it's like not maybe if i lived in a more appearance conscious place uh, conscious place but i've thought about okay at some point that implant's going to be need to be replaced should i get a reduction on the other side so that i match and i will say that my sister who may listen to this and i i don't think she'll mind that i say this that her attitude was very different from mine her attitude and she's had a double mastectomy but Hmm. she had a mastectomy and then later on she had the other side stuck to me on the other side. And her attitude was, I'm pretty sure she said this to me, if I have to go through this, I'm going to get the best looking rack that (laughs) insurance money can buy. And so, you know, yeah, that was her. Whereas I was, you know, I had different concerns. My concerns were, I don't want more than one surgery. Um, I still, you know, want to be able to hold my baby to my like bosom. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I do think about like down the road and not wanting more surgery, but being like kind of unhappy with my asymmetrical um, breast situation. It's just, it's it's on my mind so much that I wonder if um, a subsequent surgery surgery wouldn't be mm. just a way to kind of t- take it off my mind. So what might you have done differently? I wouldn't have done anything differently. Okay. It's except maybe, the I guess the only thing I would have done differently is gone in before now to get a reduction on my healthy breast so that my breasts matched. Ah. It'd be a reduction and a lift at this point because I'm 50. <laughs> so am I understanding you correctly that you just don't like that your breasts are two different sizes? Yeah, it's an, it's hard to dress. Um, I have okay, to, I okay, ha- yep. yeah, All it's right, hard to right. fit in clothes. And, um, and I have to think about 
Like, do I care when I go out into the world? Like, you know, do I care about how my breasts look basically? So I'm curious if we're relating to, if I can relate to this in the way of having my colostomy. Yeah. Like I don't mind that people know that I have a colostomy. Right. And when my belly was starting to get a little soft and pushing it out and it was poking its way through my shirts a little bit more. Yeah. I don't want to draw attention to my body and have people wonder what they're looking at. You know, when I get, when I unintentionally find myself looking at someone's body and then I kind of look back and I look away, like, what are you doing? You stay, you know, what are you doing? Stand at the person. But I don't want to draw attention to my body that has, you know, an odd inquiry to the, to the, to the, to the person looking, you know, am I, how am I, am I articulating that properly? I don't want to draw attention to myself. I don't mind people seeing the colostomy. I so for some reason, I'd, I'd prefer to not have people look at me with confusion and wonder what they're looking at. Yeah, sure. I'm wondering for you if like, you know, like, is it all right that I ask about this? Yes, I, apparently this is what I'm talking about on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so, but no, but it's, I really, no, I'm, really cu- I'm really curious about it. Like there, there's the, you're really pointing to something, you know, that you, that there's, you're clearly okay with having two different size breasts. Mm-hmm. Yet there are times when you're out in, when you're out in public that you'd rather it not be visible. Right. You'd rather it's not be That's known. Right. Yeah. I mean, people who know me know, but yeah, I'd rather have the, you know, the tighter dress or shirt that I'm wearing. Just look, you know, it's the same reason really that we wear bras is to like give some sort of normalizing shape to our breasts. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like talking about like um, out with friends or a job interview or... Definitely a job interview. Definitely or, a job interview. Yeah. I mean... And I guess it would depend too on how, I mean, again, I, I tend not to dress in really form-fitting stuff. So mm-hmm. a lot of times I, you know, at least my husband says people mostly don't notice. I don't know. <laughs> but, but you know, part of it is too just, you know, there's the appeal of just being able to like want to get dressed and throw something on and not have to think about how is my bra arranged? How, am I wearing my prosthesis? Like, yeah. yeah so that. what I want you to know, Sarah, yes. is every single time I get dressed, I think about if it's going to if my pouch is going to show through and where I'm going and like, I can feel the emotion like surging up to my eyes right now. It's like, I did not even realize how exhausting it can be. I I buy shirts that are buttoned down designed to hang loose and not be tucked in. I don't have any tight shirts and I wear them all because I don't want it to be seen unless I am showing it essentially not showing it, but like swimming. Yeah. Swimming trunks and my pouch flapping in the breeze. But it's like, I, there's something, I guess perhaps I'm asking you because I'm also not clear, you know, why do I not want this to be seen? And perhaps it's, it could be because people look at it. No, I mean, because they won't know what it is. It's just, right. there's, there's something about being able to have like, you know, a standard, not, not have any odd things poking out, you know, or, or yeah. I'm not sure yeah. or, or things missing or a, it's, but yeah, I get dressed every day thinking about where I'm going, who's going to see me. Can I just not care today? Right, exactly. And maybe that's something that I'm going to start paying attention to and letting go of um, and distinguishing, you know, what's there, what's between me and being free, a little more free, being completely free around this thing. Yeah. But every day, every day. Every day. That's and right. When I am in my glass studio working, I 
you know, I don't care. I will. I wear a hernia belt. Mm-hmm. It's very comfortable in the summertime when it's hot out. I take the hernia belt off and I have a loose t-shirt and it is clearly, there's clearly something poking from my abdomen and anybody who walks in is going to see it. And I don't care. I'm at work. You know, I'm sweating bullets. It's hot in there. I got my t-shirt on. Where you're just like, mm-hmm. but certain places in the world, I don't want it to poke out. Hmm. And so what's interesting to me is I have never noticed. I know you have a However, one more thing I want to throw in there. Go ahead. And one distinctly different thing that I don't want to step over is that for you as a woman, you're talking about a breast and that it fits inside of our human mind, you know, uh, uh, um, conception of femininity and woman. And this pouch doesn't do that. That's not my masculinity. I don't feel is... I mean, maybe it could be, you know, Well, I think some people would think that any sign of quote-unquote weakness is <laughs> not masculine. Like yeah. having a human body. <laughs> like having a human <laughs> body is not particularly masculine. It's not very masculine. <laughs> or feminine in some cases. Right, or it needs to be an invulnerable, right? The masculine body is the there invulnerable you go. There you body. Go. And this, this reveals vulnerability. Yes, yeah. Um, Nothing that I know anything about. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my sister's now appalled that I spent so much time talking about my breasts, but, <laughs> but, you know, and there, there are, I do follow several Instagram accounts of women who show themselves, um, topless, uh, women who have had breast cancer and show themselves topless either with their scars, very visible, either they've had implants or they haven't had implants, but who have been extremely, um, who are extremely open and are making it sort of a political, social project to say this is what it looks like after the surgery mm-hmm. this is just this is just a body i love um, when i see those i love me too and also you know uh, aging bodies um you know large bodies like i i admire disabled bodies like i admire the people um who do this and i admire their project and sometimes i just want to i don't know look Normal. Quote normal. <laughs> Quote normal. Absolutely. Yeah. Just, so thank you for answering that question. Sure. I do appreciate that. So you had chemo in May. So it sounds like you had, a, did you have pre-surgery chemo? No, I had surgery and then. When was your surgery? Do you so my, your surgery my surgery was beginning of April. Okay. And then chemo started in May. It was actually my husband's birthday is at the end of May and it started that week. And then went through the summer. It was the summer of chemo. 2012. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's right. And I had a three-year-old and I put him back in childcare because, you know, I'd quit my job to stay home with him and that lasted for about four months and then I got cancer. And then um, we have an amazing childcare provider who took him right back. And Hmm. um, yeah, and my... Husband just like made everything happen that summer. It really took a toll on him. I mean, honestly, sometimes I thought he would never say this ever, but sometimes I feel like it was harder on him than it was on me. I can hear that. I feel like my for my first diagnosis, I was married, and my wife at the time. Oh my gosh! Because you had a little one. A little one. He was five months old. Oh my gosh! He was that little. Oh. Yeah, I mean, know who I think about at times? The people in the hospital who knew that, you know, like the staff who knew we had cancer and they're walking us to the exam room. Like those people looking at me and my wife and my five-month-old baby, if I saw that, I would just be like, no, come on. Yeah. 
So unfair. There's so many, you know. (laughs) And it's interesting how we, you know, tend to uh, sympathize with others when we're the one diagnosed. But uh, my former wife, you know, when, when we were together, she... She worked so hard with the new baby, and my stepson was nine, and you know I couldn't do a thing. Oh, I was so laid funny. out. Of course you couldn't. And it was so much work for her. Yes. Yeah. I mean, partners need support big time. We had a friend, or still have, but back then we had a friend who was a doctor, and she called us and had a conversation. She was like, look... Ideally, what you want to do is take the finances away from Bert, take all the big decision-making stuff away from him, let him navigate his diagnosis, and you take the stuff on. Yeah. And she agreed to that. My wife agreed to that. And she was just taking on more and more. And in the process, my stepson, like, you know, he didn't get as much time with his mom as he used to. I mean, even just a new baby will do that. And the new and the new baby had already done that. Yeah. And then the diagnosis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's oh. so much impact on a family when a person gets diagnosed. And those of us who've been diagnosed, you know, we we see the people, you know, our loved ones and our family members who are doing all they can to help us. And it's, uh, you know, they don't go unnoticed. Sometimes, you know, they may feel unnoticed because we are so deep in our treatment. Right. And I worry, you know, that they feel unnoticed by those who are helping us too, right? By others, because people are so focused on, as they should, I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't be, but they're really focused on the person going through treatment, on the person with cancer. Um, I mean, I had, I know that the Cancer Resource Center here does a support group for partner caretakers. I love that. But my partner didn't want to go to a support group, so, which I think is probably pretty common too. Yeah, and, and but it's beautiful that it's out there for, oh. for 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 partners who are like holy Christmas. Yeah. Somebody am I, am I, is anyone else losing their mind dealing right. with this? Right. Exactly. Cuz you know a here's a great example a and you know what I noticed with my wife you know the spouse who is caring for you, you know you know, there, there is no, you know, cookie cutter, one size fits all in this. But, you know, I would think for plenty of folks, there are people who have cancer who would have a hard time hearing their spouse vent about how difficult it is with them having cancer. Well, here's the thing. They need to vent to someone else. <laughs> That's my point. Exactly. Yeah. That's my point. Exactly. Is that, you know, finding someone else, maybe it's not a support group, right. but a person yes. in your life. Yes. Like I talk about having accountability partners. Like, hmm. I have accountability partners in my life with certain things that I'm doing. Really? That's so cool. Yeah. When I started this podcast, uh-huh. I got really confronted before I started putting it together and scheduling them. And I would just freak out about, you know, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? Because I wanted to fulfill my, on my vision. Right. And my sister was the one who would check in with me. She's amazing. And she'd check in with me about, you know, how I'm doing and where I am with it. And am I scheduling it? And then when I ask a local, a friend of mine who owns a sound studio if I could hire him to be my sound consultant. He said, no, I will be your sound consultant. And in fact, you know, you can hire me for other things, but I'm actually going to help you out and get this thing rolling because I really love what you're up to. And he said, you know, can we have a weekly, after we talked for like, you know, half an hour, he's like, can we have a weekly call? And I'm like, what? I love this idea. 
Right. And so to have, and so, great. yeah, and we can do this with each other with our diagnoses and we can do this with each other with just any project we have going on, but people right. that, people that we invite to hold us accountable, which, you know, for some folks it can take a little getting used to. It's like, you want me to, like, <laughs> how hard do I push? You know, yeah, but, right, right. <laughs> but having someone hold our partner accountable for their own well-being. Yeah. As their spouse has cancer. Yeah. Like, you know, don't try to carry all this. Right. My former wife and I, we didn't we didn't have the skills hmm. to navigate it as well as we would have liked to. Mm-hmm. Who does? Right. Who knows how to navigate a cancer diagnosis unless unless you sadly have, you know, a very intimate relationship with it already. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to do. So I love that the Cancer Resource Center has a support group for those folks who are like, yeah, like a little help here. Yeah. This is hard. Yeah. And I would imagine some folks might be, say, uh, a little more tough to support. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like if if a person is mad as hell about having cancer and it's coming out and they're speaking with their loved ones, it may not feel good and it may not be ideal, but they're maybe they're doing the best they can. And, you know, I can imagine, you know, their spouse might, you know, want a little somewhere to go to be like, holy, am I the only one whose spouse is getting mad at them for spreading the peanut butter the wrong way? Right, exactly. (laughs) No, actually, (laughs) my husband was furious. And I can also imagine really um, getting mad at the person who has cancer. Like, how dare you mess up our lives this way, right? Like, we've got a baby. What are you doing? Right, and then to feel shame about thinking that. Yes. I wish I didn't think that. And now I'm a jerk because I thought it. Yep. And, you know, and that. And on and on. Right, and and as if we can control the thought thoughts that cross our mind. Right. Like that is a separate part of the being, even though we're just one simple, one single being in one unit. There is that part of the mind that has the commentary that slides in. And then we like take responsibility for that as if it was us, as if we had right. anything to do with it. Yeah. Like the endless chatter of the mind that, you know, oh my gosh, and she has cancer and look, you know, any judgment that arises, it's like, you know, it's so liberating when you get that you're not in control of your mind. You're in control of part of it, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. But there's a part of your mind that doesn't ever stop just running nonstop. It's the commentary. Right. It's like the little ticker going along the bottom of the news while the news is on. It's still chattering away with its own little thoughts. So I love, the, again, that, that the Cancer Resource Center here the, the, uh, of the Finger Lakes here in Tompkins County has that wonderful program. Yep. And this, their services are free. And um, want to, you know, I don't know how many of if most communities or most communities of a certain size have resource centers like this. I mean, I was really impressed when we went in, which was soon after my diagnosis, and and the staff there was so amazing, and mm. they were also really prepared to be like, okay, do you have insurance? You know, is money a concern? You know, okay, well, you know, what are your, your you know, money a concern? Is childcare concern? Is cleaning your house a concern? Is they were willing to like support us through all of that if needed, which I was just so impressed. Yeah. And the other thing that we did is we um, had always had a couples therapist that we see off and on um, when things get challenging for us and that she was an amazing support during the whole cancer journey as well. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. So that, I mean, again, if someone has access to that or, you know, it could be a clergy person, it doesn't have to be a a paid counselor, but um, someone who can support the couple, uh, you know, in that 
way and in their relationship. Yeah, as a uh, as a coach, I yeah. as a life coach, or I, someone like you, or someone like me, I had a a life coach that I went to school with, and she and I, uh, after we graduated, we agreed to coach each other every two weeks. Oh, that's great! And we graduated with our certification mm-hmm. in two thousand and ten, and then I was diagnosed in two thousand and eleven. And I had her every two weeks to coach me. Oh, fantastic. And I would coach her. Right. And uh, having a therapist or a coach, you know, a lot of people don't think coach when they think cancer, right? Right. I wouldn't, I don't think I would have thought of that. I think doctor. Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And when I'm doing my job properly, you will get a recreation of your own life in such a way that you're going to go, oh, Okay, well, I could do this and this, or you know, you may see something like you know, I've really, I clearly do have a difficult decision to make, and I'm, you know, I can see it more clearly now. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy, right? But it's again, whoever it is you're working with, having somebody there to to be there with you, it's a, a another way, you know, another version of a um, accountability partner, right? You know, that's what right. you could call a therapist again, you know, yeah, or a coach, absolutely. just people to support you, really, in seeing where it is you want to go because everything gets so tangled up and it can be so foggy and difficult to see with all the emotions and all the concerns and any costs and how it's affecting your life. And when you can have someone kind of like lift that up and and present it to you and, and kind of untangle it all so you can then look at it and go, oh, okay, mm-hmm. we can do that. Right. But it seemed enormous right. with all the emotion that was attached right, to it. Right, right. So good for you two for going to a therapist. Oh, I think everyone in a you know romantic partnership relationship, I highly recommend therapy. I I love it. Is it's like a relationship coach? I love it absolutely. Yeah. I love it because it's it's you know we don't know how to navigate some of the harder things in life. We don't have experience and a teacher in every difficulty in life that's coming down the bike right and in this culture it seems to me that in this culture you know it's one of you can handle it like you said masculinity is that Uh you're impenetrable that's right so we're encouraged to do it all on our own as if that were possible as if that were possible i mean that's yeah the burden that that is enormous and i spent years as a man trying to do things on my own. And then I got diagnosed with cancer. <laughs> and I had a wife and a newborn and a young son. And we couldn't do it all on our own. Right. And we had to ask for help. And I remember the day I came home and I told my wife, hey, because we were having a benefit. Because we didn't oh. have the money. Because we weren't working. Right. Oh. I, I, and, uh, well, I was going to be, I did an alternative treatment. Right. The first time around. That's, right. That's how I began it. And we um, raised money for that. And uh, I remember the first time I came home and told her, I said, uh, I told someone about the benefit. And she beamed and I beamed because I didn't dare tell anybody about it that I needed help. I was supposed to do it all on my own. Right. I'm the kind of person, I have 15 bags of groceries in my hand. <laughs> yeah. And you and I'm trying to unlock the door and you say, Bert, you need a hand. I, I will automatically say, no, I'm good. Right. At this point in my life, I'll say, no, I'm good. I mean, yes, please. <laughs> thank you. Yes. It, it really took something to not do it on my own. And this culture is do it on your own. You can handle it if you're strong enough, if you have what it takes. Right. And I don't believe that at all anymore. 
I call upon my community immensely when I need it. With both diagnoses, I called upon my community for the support I needed. I worked with a coach, you worked with a therapist, mm -hmm. and going through relationship, you know, being being partners, being married, uh, whatever version of it you have, you know, it's, I'm with you 100%. I, I'm not in a relationship right now, but mm -hmm. when I have been, I'm clear that it's going to go even better if we have somebody partnering with us. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so now it's been, you're coming up on, so there was, you had your surgery in April, so there's no um, evidence of disease as That's of right. April of 2012. That's and right. So you're coming up on eight years? Eight years, yeah. Oh my goodness. I know. And I had no evidence of disease as of October of 2011. When I had the surgery, they removed it. Then they did the follow-up, you know, the, the post-surgery chemotherapy. Yeah. So I am also... You're at the same point. At eight years. Yeah. About eight and a half. Yes, but, high five. We uh, high five. <laughs> and, you know, it is... Um, there are no guarantees and there's nothing you can do <laughs> to be the one who gets to survive cancer. I have someone like my sister who has beat enormous odds. I didn't even understand what the odds were when she first got diagnosed at age 28. Um, I, of course, have 28. lost 28. Yeah. 28 and again at age 33. Oh, my goodness. I know. And she's uh, 46 this year. Sorry, sister, that I just told everyone your age. But it's I, true. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful... Uh, oh, man. It's, it's a flag. It's a victory flag. Absolutely. A joy flag. Absolutely. And I have friends who were diagnosed around the same time I was uh, or after I was who have died. And Me too. I think there's some growing awareness around this, but I think there's this story in our culture that like you actually have control over your fate in a situation like a cancer diagnosis. And that if you do the right things and you eat the right foods or you do this right treatment or um, if you do it right, then you get to live or get to take credit for living. Does that make sense? May, I, I understand what you're communicating, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, if talk about, again, just this uh, experience of like, I have no control. Like, I, of course, there are steps that I can take. I'm getting, you know, I'm choosing to get certain kind of medical treatment or, but like, there's nothing about being a good cancer patient or a bad cancer patient or did I eat enough kale or did I, you know, it's just, it is just life. It's just life. Yeah. People say to me, you had such a positive attitude, you know, and, and you lived and I will, I will hear them and say, thank you. And in my mind, what's so, cause I don't want to challenge anybody's compliment. But You're so it, nice. You should hear what I say. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say? I would say positivity has absolutely fucking nothing to do with it. Yeah. I agree with you. Fine. If you compliment my not so positive attitude, but um, <laughs> my positive attitude, but you know, that, that, that power of positive thinking stuff that makes me want to um, hurt someone. Mm. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not really, but I mean, it no, infuriates I, Yeah, me. I understand you. Yeah. I, I'm lucky. That's why I believe I'm alive. I'm lucky. Abs yes. I'm lucky and the treatment worked on me yep. for whatever reason. Yep. And I'm very lucky and I'm grateful. Yep. And I have no idea why I didn't die from my diagnosis and why friends of mine have. Exactly. But what I know is that I didn't. Right. And that's all I got. Yep. And I don't, because because we don't understand why is it only that, you know, um, seventy-five percent of people diagnosed with stage two rectal cancer live. Why do twenty-five percent of them not live? We don't know. I don't know. Right. Right. Why do some women go on to get metastatic, which is lethal breast cancer, and other women don't? We we have no idea. 
I feel really lucky. And, and, and that's about it. Yeah. And it makes me, it has made me more humble. Mm. And just this loosened my hold on the idea of, of deserving things. You get what you deserve. You don't get what you deserve. You worthy of something, not worthy of something. I just, that, that uh, moralistic kind of thinking that I can fall into just doesn't make sense when faced with cancer. And I'm sure many other experiences in life as well, but that's when it really fell apart for me is what I should say. With my cancer diagnosis, I'm like, you know what? Shit just happens. And I don't even know what else to say. And sometimes when it happens, it's pretty rough. Yeah. And nothing can protect you. You know, like not your intelligence or your wealth or your religious practice or your diet or your, um, none of that can. Yeah. I get the sense that some people, they take on a certain diet or a certain practice because they want to feel like they are doing something. Sure. And, and that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. To and if yeah. you want to, like for me, what, what really empowered me in my diagnosis was, uh, well, I'll say like the second time around was my band and I would do gigs like on the chemo every two weeks. So like about once a month or so I do a gig on an off week. Wow. When I'm up there playing that band and singing my ass off and I got an insanely fantastic band backing me up and we're just blowing the roof off the bar and people are cheering and dancing. (laughs) That was incredible to look forward to. That's awesome. and, and, And did that make me more healthy? I don't think so. I think what it did is it provided me something to look forward to in my treatment, not just one more chemo treatment. Oh man, that's so good. And, you know, towards the end of my treatments, you know, I it was, I, I, I don't know how many gigs I did toward the ends of my treatments because, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's the, after six months, you know, and having the cumulative effect of the chemo, right. it, it lasts, you know, first it makes you sick for four days, then five, then six, then right. seven, then then you're going the whole, you know, right. full two weeks. But it, it was wonderful to have a, uh, you know, um, uh, things, you know, uh, uh, you know, goals and uh, immediate goals that I was fulfilling and things that I was doing that I loved, but I didn't feel that that was increasing my odds of being alive. What it was doing, it was increasing the amount of joy I felt in any given day. Yeah. And when you had, when you really get, you know, and it, it was really terrifying the first time I got like, oh, wow. I have no say about this. Right. No control. I've told people before, it's easier having cancer than having a really mean boss. Oh, wait, easier? Oh, because you have no say? Because you have no say. With a mean boss, you can wish that they get fired or you could get a job somewhere else. And there's so many things that if people would just see clearly, Mm -hmm. if people just realized what this person was doing, if they could realize what they were doing, if they would just give me a break. But with cancer, there's nobody to complain to. Is that easier? I think that's harder. Well, right. No, no, for me, that's what made it easier. Wow. I was like, oh, oh my gosh. Like, you know, with tears in my eyes, I was like, oh my gosh, I have no say. There's no one to fight with. Like I can, <laughs> I can just be. Wow. And being did include sometimes crying my eyes out. Sure. Sometimes feeling hopeless, but I was learning to let myself be however I was being and not try to feel positive or try to feel hopeful. I was just like, I'm just going to like ride this wave and it's going to go however it goes. But I, I have no say. I don't, I don't, I don't, there was something really 
freeing for me and realizing that I had zero say. That is beautiful. That is really beautiful. For me, the surrender was really challenging. Yeah, and I certainly had challenges in the surrender. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, there, I had a mantra of, it was a question, it's, you know, what am I letting go of today? Oh. What am I going to, I'm letting go of my belief that chemo is going to feel like that and just be with that chemo feels like this. Wow. Or let go of my expectation that this family member is going to behave a certain way. <laughs> and, 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 so, and so why did I have this practice? Not because I was like floating around joyfully, it's because right. it was so incredibly difficult that I had to put this, that I chose to put this practice in place to bring myself back to reality. Otherwise, my mind would wander and pull me into a world of hope and wishing, oh. which is not fulfilling. It's no, torture. It is torture. <laughs> it's torture. And it's, and this conversation is actually helping me to really see. Yeah, uh, the purpose was to to be able to return to a peaceful space because wondering if you might die really soon for most of us is not particularly peaceful. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. I have nothing more to say. Nothing more to next topic. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, it's uh however a person is going to well, you know, I'm thinking about this idea of um, maybe this is my own personal neurosis, um, but I don't think so. I think um, this idea of of doing it right. Um, I know um, a woman in her mid forties who just finished breast cancer treatment, um, who is a long distance runner and um, really devoted to being outdoors and fitness, and she was able to do some running and continue her her training during her treatment. Mm. I, on the other hand, became one with my bed during my treatment. As I did with my couch. Right. I mean, I loved my bed so much. And I, and I don't think this woman would ever say that anyone should do cancer the way she's doing it. But I think it's so important just to be accepting of yourself and the way... You have to do it. And there's not, again, there's not any, I mean, it was hard for me, but there couldn't be any shoulds around it. Like, oh, I should be more active or I should be drinking more green juice or I should, I don't actually believe that, by the way. Or, um, (laughs) you know, I should, what, I don't know, whatever. I should be, there's no way you should be during cancer treatment. Yeah. And that should is, again, what I was talking about earlier with the letting go. It's the expectation that I should be a certain way. Right. It's like, okay, I get that I believe that, and now I'm going to actually kind of let in where I actually am. Right. Like my nurses would tell me, as much exercise as you can get is, you know, please get as much exercise as you can. I'm like, exercise? I come home from here. Uh-huh. I lay on the couch. I didn't get any exercise. No one I get off the couch? Yeah. To leave that to walk out of the house is to go back and get more treatment. Right. I did not get exercise. Right. My I actually was diagnosed with a systemic atrophy after my treatment was over. Whoa, because your treatment went on for so long. Because I did ten months of a of a non traditional treatment, mm-hmm. and then I did my pre surgery chemo and radiation, and then surgery, and then mm. you know the rest period, and then the chemo. It was about a full year. Yeah. And so my body had had almost two years of not doing too much. And so I went to physical therapy to get my uh, muscles and my strength back. And, uh, you know, I love, and, you know, I love what your friend is doing right now Mm -hmm. because 
that's what she needs. Right. Like, and I'm, you know. That is her practice and her. It's what's keeping her. Lifeblood. And I don't, I'm not close enough to her to know whether she's putting pressure on herself to do it, but I don't get that sense. Right. I get that sense. It's like she's doing what she needs to do. I would love to have her on the podcast and find out. Um, We can find out if she's willing to be on. Yeah. Wonderful. Is she local or would it be a Zoom? It'd be a Zoom podcast. It would be a Zoom podcast. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. This may sound a bit odd, but one of the things I appreciate about you that you've said to me is, Bert, I hate when you say your cancer was a gift. That does drive me crazy. I'm in an affectionate way. And so one of the things I noticed, I just had a conversation with a guest last week and she tells me cancer is hands down the best thing that's ever happened to her. And I thought of you (laughs) and how that drives you nuts. Mm -hmm. But what I also noticed that she and I share in our experience, she and I were both not living the lives we wanted to live. Hmm. We were pretending to be something we weren't. We were, we were unwilling to be the person we really are in fear of judgment. You know, she explained how she had, bleached hair and perfect nails and starving herself and working out all the time so she could look a certain way. And I was not just living the life that I really wanted to live. I was, uh, you know, my spiritual interest, you know, I just buried and I wouldn't talk about, you know, um, that, uh, I don't want to say publicly, but I mean, like, you know, I limited who I spoke to Mm -hmm. it about. And when it comes to the softer sides of my personality, you know, the sensitive person that I am, I spent most of my adult life uh, keeping that hidden and trying to hide it. Unbeknownst to me, everybody can see who I am, you know, pretty clearly. (laughs) But I thought I was hiding it. You know, by the time I was 19, I had a motorcycle. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I had, you know, black leather boots, leather chaps, leather jacket, you know, I mean, just a piss pot helmet, you know, just (laughs) like trying, you know, the, you know, trying to find a way to express my masculinity to tell you the truth. And then mm-hmm. as I got, once I got diagnosed, I was like, why am I pretending to be something? I mean, I'd softened a bit by the time I got diagnosed, but you know, why am I trying to be something I'm not? Mm-hmm. I'm all done. I'm all done trying to be something I'm not. I'm going to be me. And if people don't like that, fine. I can actually start relating and connecting with people who are really like me. Interestingly, my friends didn't change. Hmm. I just stopped hiding who I was. And so for me, getting diagnosed with cancer had me realize if I'm going to die for crying out loud, I'm going to live my ass off mm-hmm. while I'm alive. Mm-hmm. And my guest from last week, she also had the same re- re- reaction, the same response. Like cancer woke me up and had me stop pretending in life. So I'm curious if perhaps you, when you were diagnosed, you know, the question is, you know, were you living the way you'd already wanted to live? So perhaps it wasn't providing you, you know, encouragement to wake up. It was more just of a pain in the ass. <laughs> 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 um, you know, it's funny. Um I see my life as a series. This is now looking back so far. This is a view that I've been thinking about for some time. I see my life as a series of initiations and cancer was a big one. Mm. And 
I sort of joked to the universe around the time of my diagnosis, after I was diagnosed, I was like, you know, I was on a spiritually evolving path anyway, and I really didn't need this kick in the ass. Like, mm-hmm. I would have gotten there, damn it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I am plenty enlightened, and I'm still working on it, and I, I really think that I didn't need this. <laughs> I mean, that was my joke, right? Yeah. Um, so, and the cancer... Even in, um, you know, what for me, having a relatively privileged social situation, like having health insurance here in the United States, um, it was such, it was, there was so much suffering attached to it um, that there's no way I will ever consider it itself to be a gift. It, it, of course, it came with many gifts that were unexpected and, um, and beautiful particularly around the way my community rallied around me. I've never heard you say that before. Yeah, I know. It's taken me a while to get there. <laughs> no, but, and I do just, I mean, I make that distinction between the cancer, which sucked. I wish it on no one, not even mm-hmm. certain political figures that I really loathe, but, and the gifts that came with it, which were tremendous. And, and I will say, um, I was, again, I think on a path when this happened to me, but it happened to me when I was 42 as you and I both know, this is when the Uranus opposition happens. It sure as hell woke me up. And, hmm. w- and it woke me up to, to um, what was really most important to me in, my, in this lifetime. So my, uh, it's, not, it's not like these are things I didn't know, but it, it infused me with this new juice or energy. It, you know, it's, that lightning bolt struck me that said, you need to get fucking serious about your spirituality, um, about your deep love for the earth and for the wild things, mm. um, and about how much you love being alive. Like, like more than I can express how much um, being human, being in this lifetime, in this incarnation means to me, how... Um, Deeply, I wanted to continue to live it, to raise my child, to be part of something, you know, my community and my family and and the nature around me. And I don't do things quickly, so it's not as if there was a quick transformation that happened, but certainly what's unfolded over the last eight years has absolutely changed my life and sent me on a direction that is more uh, aligned with, authentic to who I am than I was on before. Now, would that have happened without cancer? (laughs) (laughs) I like to think so. (laughs) I don't know. Of course, I don't know. There is no without cancer for me. Um, But I get what you're saying. Yeah, there is a, you feel like there's a good chance that would have revealed itself regardless. And you're not stepping over the fact that having a diagnosis did provide Gifts in your life. It did it brought, absolutely, yeah, like, and clarity. And, and clarity, how so? Clarity about again about what was important to me. Yes, like yes. really vitally important, and uh, and who was vitally important to me, um, and really just a lot more clarity around, and a lot just kind of less pussyfooting around my uh, spirituality. I had the same thing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I uh, really got deeply connected to myself 
spiritually. And uh, so when I was married, I kind of tamped down my fire, my spiritual fire within me. I tamped it down in order to be a father, in order to be a husband. Mm -hmm. And uh, when my wife and I were together, we didn't, our spirit, our conversations about you know spiritual pursuits, they kind of petered away hmm. because we just weren't a good match for those conversations. Just they didn't they didn't unfold after a while of being married. They just didn't unfold the way they used to, and so I stopped bringing it up, and hmm. and and tamped it down. And when I got cancer, I was like, you yeah, well, know what? Like, this has been my fire raging within hmm. me. And I am going to fuel it with oxygen and it's going to rage. And it did. And having cancer was the reason for that. And for anyone listening, like, I don't want anyone to have cancer. I, I, you know, the gift that I got from cancer, I don't want the gift. I'm I'm good now. I'm full. (laughs) See, you sound like me now. (laughs) (laughs) And it really, I was like, you know, a cat trying to be dragged, you know, pushed into a box and it's got all four claws, you know, all all four uh, paws gripping on the box. I wasn't willing to live the way that I'd wanted to live. I was too scared. And when I got diagnosed, it was like the hell with this. Yeah. So what what I want to ask is there, there were gifts that you got from it. Yeah. So what is it that drives you nuts when people say cancer was a gift? Um, when excuse me, when I say it, stick, stick, oh, stick to not, me. No, it's not. About, it's not personal. <laughs> no, I know it's not. But I was like, <laughs> maybe it might be easier to say to, to the person to not to not address a hypothetical, but to address a because I respect anyone's experience with a diagnosis. Of course, someone says this wasn't a gift. It never was. It never will be. I'm like, I I great. Like I got it. I would never say that someone else's cancer was a gift. My goodness gracious! Like it's not a gift. It's Right, so it's um, terrifying. It's 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 ugh. yeah. Um, so I, it's funny because I did used to think we had different ideas about this, but I feel like our um, thoughts on this have coalesced uh, as we talk about you know just as time has passed and as you and I talk about them. Um, it 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 was really not about you saying that cancer is a gift, but to me that sounds so glib for someone to say that. It sounds mm. so glib and dr- like sucked dry of meaning. And it does not in any way, uh, that phrase does not in any way capture the grit or the juiciness um, or the suffering or the anything of the experience of cancer. 100%. It does not. And it could suggest to someone that, you know, the exact opposite of what a cancer diagnosis is. Cancer. My cancer diagnosis was messy, yeah. physically, mentally, emotionally. Like a bomb. Like a bomb. Yeah. Oh, so thank you for, for answering that question because I was wondering about that. And it's, it's a, you articulated that really well. It's like to say it, it suggested it's something clean and wonderful. Right. I like presents. I like gifts. <laughs> Wrapped nicely. But not cancer. <laughs> but not cancer. I just want like, you know, a nice pair of boots or something. <laughs> a new book. <laughs> that would suffice. <laughs> that would be a very nice gift. Yeah. 
Hmm. Well, I really have enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I have too. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. See you all in the next podcast, and thank you so much for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.